Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. hear it again from God's Word this morning as we return to Ephesians chapter 2. And just as a reminder, to this point in Ephesians chapter 2, we've seen our helplessness apart from Christ, that left to ourselves, we're dead in our sins, following the world and our desires and deserving God's wrath. And of course, being dead in our sins, there's nothing we can do or contribute to change our situation. If we are to be saved, God is going to have to act. And not only is God going to have to act, but he's going to have to act out of his own kindness and mercy and grace because there is nothing in us to deserve such help. But of course, that's the good news of the gospel, that God has done just that. That he has sent his son to die in our place and to rise again to give us life. And this salvation that God offers is a gift given by his grace alone to be received by faith in Christ. That's what we've seen so far in Ephesians chapter 2. But such a significant work of God is not going to just give us salvation individually. It's also going to impact our relationships together as men and women who are saved by Christ. And as we move to the second half of Ephesians chapter 2, that is going to become more of the focus of our text. So, With that in mind, if you would turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, let's read verses 11 through 18. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace." And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. This is God's word. Father, how we thank you for your word. How we thank you for the work of Christ that you've done in us. Would you give us greater understanding and joy in Christ this morning, and we pray it for his sake. Amen. Early in 1987, Peter Robinson took a trip to West Berlin, and he found the city when he arrived there vibrant, full of life and activity. But shortly after arriving, he climbed the few steps at the Brandenburg Gate and looked across the Berlin Wall into East Berlin. His first look took him aback. It was, he said, as if all the color had been drained from the camera. 
Look one way and you have life, color, activity. Look across the wall and there was nothing but a strange colorless void, empty and in disrepair. That wall separated two different worlds, even though many on each side were from the same family. At dinner that night with several West Berliners, Peter asked them what they thought of the Berlin Wall. He wondered, maybe West Berliners don't care much about the wall. Maybe it's those in East Berlin who care. But when asking the question, he was met with silence, and Robinson wondered if he'd committed a social gaffe. But then a man said, my sister lives only a couple of kilometers that way. I have not seen her in 20 years. What do you think we feel about that wall? Robinson was a speechwriter. He was there in Berlin on an assignment to prepare President Reagan's speech that would be delivered at the Brandenburg Gate a few weeks later. And it was reflecting on that look and that dinner that Robinson penned those famous words that Reagan would speak. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. As many of you know, it was only two years later, November of 1989, that that wall came down, that wall that had so completely separated people from one another for so many years was torn down. And for many, this may be the most iconic wall-tearing-down moment in history. But in our passage this morning, Paul describes an even greater wall-tearing-down moment, and it occurred through Jesus Christ and the plan of God. After all, if you think back to what we've learned in Ephesians, God's grand plan is to unite all things in heaven and earth in Christ. But if he's going to do that, there are barriers that need to come down. Barriers between God and man, but also barriers between man and man. After all, since God's law had intentionally called his people in the Old Testament to be separate from the nations around them that they might be holy to him, The barrier between Jew and Gentile was particularly thick. And we know, as we come to Ephesians now, that this church, we know from the background we looked at in Acts, this church in Ephesus was a mix of Jew and Gentile. And knowing the history of God's plan of redemption, Paul is now going to take this passage, and as well as a portion of chapter 3, to spell out the wonder of God's work to bring Jew and Gentile together in one people in the church. And the goal of today's passage is to describe exactly how, in Christ, God could take men and women who were separated from God and from each other and make them reconciled and at peace with God and with each other. So let's begin this morning by looking at verses 11 and 12, where Paul describes the past separation that was true apart from Christ. Paul here begins by addressing the Gentiles specifically. And he argues that while everyone, Jew and Gentile, shares the same helplessness apart from Christ, dead in our trespasses and sins, the Gentiles had an added hopelessness. They were previously separated from the Jews, who called them the uncircumcision. And while, of course, it was possible for a Gentile to become a Jew by being circumcised and submitting to the God of Israel, or at least to become part of his people— As Jew and Gentile, there was a wall of hostility between them. A second century letter by a Jewish author expressed this well. He wrote, Our lawgiver has fenced us about with impenetrable palisades and with walls of iron 
to the end that we should mingle in no way with any other nation. That's an expression of a wall of hostility. But this separation was much more than a social barrier. As Paul says, you Gentiles at one time were separated from Christ. That is, while God's ultimate goal and plan was to bring the Gentiles into his salvation, prior to Christ, the Gentiles had no idea about that. They didn't know that. They had no knowledge or awareness that a Messiah was coming. They had no hope because the Messiah was coming as the King of Israel. And so until Christ showed up and tore down this wall, they were apart from Christ, no hope of salvation to come. They were also, Paul says, excluded from the people of Israel. Now, being outside of God's chosen people was a significant disadvantage. A knowledge of God, a knowledge of his law was only possible for those who were part of the people of Israel. But aside from some notable exceptions like Rahab and Ruth, the Gentiles were alienated and excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and had no part with them. And because they were excluded from the people of Israel, they were also strangers to the covenants of promise. Now just think about the blessings of the promises that God made to Israel. He promised to Abraham to be his God and the God of his descendants, to bless his descendants and curse those who cursed them. He gave Israel his law, which was given to reveal God's will. He promised to David and his descendants the promise of an eternal king who would come in his line. Think even of our order of worship this morning, our confession of sin from Psalm 130, a psalm to Israel saying that the Lord would offer forgiveness, and then the assurance of God's grace from Isaiah 43, which read, but now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you, I have called you by my name, you are mine. The Gentiles had no part of those promises apart from Christ. They were complete strangers to these promises. And so without the promises, without the covenants, being outside the people of God, and with no understanding of a Messiah to come, they were utterly without hope in the world. And when hope dies, life shrivels. I had a small glimpse of this in recent weeks as I watched the NCAA March Madness basketball tournament. It's a sports event where there's miracles that occur, but you can visibly sense the moment when the losing team thinks they still have a chance, and then they realize they don't, and their whole demeanor and effort changes. But how much more is that true in life? Hope makes all the difference. Without hope, life shrivels. The great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones put it well when he said that apart from Christ, the deeper a man thinks, the more pessimistic he must become. For without hope in Christ, there is no purpose to life, and we have but a few options. We can eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. We can stoically press on in suffering for some sense of duty's sake. Or we can conclude with Albert Camus that suicide is the only logical conclusion. Gentiles were without hope. And of course, the reason they were without hope is that they were without God. Israel had hope because they had the word of God and the presence of God with them. Think of how Moses put it to them in Deuteronomy chapter 4 when he said, What great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call on him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all his law that I set before you today? 
But the Gentiles had none of this. They had no knowledge of God. They were separated from his presence, separated from his people, from his promises, and therefore they had no hope in the world. Commentator John Stott calls verse 12 the terrible five-fold deprivation of Gentiles before Christ. And it doesn't take us long to realize that millions today suffer a similar deprivation, that they have no knowledge of God, they have not heard of Christ. And of course, apart from the few Jewish descendants among us, this deprivation on top of our sins would be true of every one of us had not God sent Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world, had he not reached out in love and found us. So this is the past separation, what was true of the Gentiles and would have been true for us had it not been for what he did in Christ. But in the face of this, Paul moves on to show us the present reconciliation that we have in Christ. And verse 13 is the hinge, because verse 13 describes how God brings about this present reconciliation. And once again, we have this key phrase that we've heard over and over again, in Christ. God brings us reconciliation in union with Jesus, who sends his spirit to us. We are brought near to all the things that we were separated from in Christ, in relationship with him. Paul so beautifully emphasizes this throughout the passage with the word himself. You see in verse 14, Jesus himself is our peace. Not Jesus gave us peace over here, but Jesus himself is our peace. In verse 15, he creates in himself one new man. These blessings of the gospel and salvation are found in relationship with Jesus so that our joy and hope are found in knowing and drawing near to him. Specifically, Paul says, we are brought near by the blood of Christ. We know that the Bible tells us that Christ's shed blood both pays the price for our sin and resolves God's anger against our sin. And so it's Christ's blood that clears this path of reconciliation. And so Paul says, by Christ's blood and in union with Jesus himself by faith, we are welcomed and brought near to all the things that we were separated from before, to God's promises, to hope, to God himself. And then as we are brought together to God himself, we are also reconciled to one another. And that's what Paul lays out in these next few verses. And while Paul's focus in the one hand is how God has reconciled Jew and Gentile to each other, he makes it clear repeatedly that the root of our reconciliation with each other is our reconciliation first with God. Verse 16 declares it clearly. He reconciles us both to God in one body through Christ. And verse 18 adds, for through him, that is Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. In other words, the first and primary and most important reconciliation is between God and man. Apart from Christ, there is separation between God and man. There is a wall, a barrier between a holy God and sinful man. But at the death of Christ, his blood has killed the enmity between God and man, taking his wrath and welcoming us into his presence in peace. Hebrews ten nineteen puts it so well when it says to us, we have confidence now to enter the holy places. How is that possible? By the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way he opened for us through the curtain. So let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. You think of the way people lack peace today. Personal peace, 
interpersonal peace, social peace, spiritual peace. But Christ has come to bring peace, and Paul's logic is clear. Our reconciliation with God himself is our primary peace, and it is our reconciliation with God that then becomes the basis and the foundation for our reconciliation with each other. And again, as we think about this, in the unfolding plan of God, the greatest barrier between mankind existed between Jew and Gentile. The Old Testament law had called for a separation, a separation in order to preserve God's people as holy. And this separation had developed even further into an attitude of hostility and alienation between Jew and Gentile, such as you might remember in Galatians chapter 2, how Paul rebukes Peter because Peter was not even willing to eat with the Gentiles for fear of what his fellow Jews would say. We have a great picture of this alienation between Jew and Gentile in the temple. The temple in Jesus' day stood on a raised platform, the temple mount, and up on that temple mount there was the the temple itself, and then there was the court of priests that the priests could enter. There was the court of Israelites where Israelite men could enter. There was the court of women that Israelite women could enter, and they were all on the same plane next to each other there on the temple mount. But then you had to go down five steps, and you came to a five-foot wall that circled the entire temple. And at intervals, there were inscriptions which read, No foreigner or Gentile shall enter within this wall. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his death. Archaeologists have recovered several of these inscriptions. I saw one of them myself at the museum in Istanbul on a college trip. What a visible barrier between Jew and Gentile. And even after that wall, you had to go down 14 more steps to get to the court of the Gentiles. So that even a Gentile who wished to worship the God of Israel was removed by 19 steps in a wall from the Israelites. But Christ broke down this dividing wall of hostility. And he broke it down by doing two things. On the one hand, he abolished the law and commandments and the ordinances that separated the Jews from the Gentiles. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, hold on a second. Jesus said he didn't come to abolish the law. So what does Paul mean by saying that Christ abolished the law and commandments? Well, Jesus, of course, meant that he had not come to undermine the law, but rather to fulfill all that the law had been pointing towards. And Jesus fulfills all the laws and sacrifices so that he himself now becomes our means of holiness. And he himself becomes the means of our access to God, not the system of the law. That's why Colossians 2.16 can say, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or a new moon or a Sabbath. But these are shadows of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. And when the Old Testament law ceases to be required as our separation and as our access to God, it is done away with as a barrier between Jew and Gentile. But then Christ did a second thing. Christ also tore down the barrier between Jew and Gentile by making all who come to God through Christ one body. He brings everyone to God through Christ together. And if together we are reconciled to God by together being united to Christ, then unless there's going to remain some sort of division or alienation in Christ himself, which is impossible, then there can be no division or alienation among those who are in him. 
And so Paul says that he himself is our peace. For in Jesus, Jew and Gentile are both reconciled to God in one body, one group through the cross, killing the hostility. In fact, verse 15 puts it even more starkly when he says that Christ did far more than just reconcile two hostile parties to each other. We might imagine any sort of mediator bringing two hostile groups together and working out an agreement. That's not what Christ did. Christ, in his death and resurrection, has actually created in himself one new man in place of two. In other words, there is not separate groups of Jew and Gentile with different rankings and 19 steps in between them, or such that you had to become a Jew in order to come to God, but instead he has made one new man that all people, Jew and Gentile, come to him through faith in Jesus. Through Jesus, there are no second-class citizens, but one new united people who are all equally welcomed into God's presence through Christ himself. What a blessing this promise is as God fulfills his purposes through Jesus Christ. As I think about these two things, this breaking down of the law and the commandments, as well as making us one in Christ, I was reminded as maybe a a small picture of the way that the color barrier was broken down in baseball by Jackie Robinson. There was both a legal barrier between Jackie Robinson and playing in the major leagues, as well as a personal barrier. The legal barrier, the policy that an African-American could not play in Major League Baseball was broken down when the Dodgers president, Branch Rickey, overcame that policy. But then in addition to the law and the policy being broken down, there had to be another step. Jackie actually had to be united with his fellow teammates on the Dodgers. That happened when he was given the same uniform and asked to play on the same team with the same goal on the same field. Manager Leo DeRocher reportedly told some hostile teammates, Robinson is part of us now. And he is good enough to make us all rich if we will all play with him. And so if you won't play with him, you'll be traded. See what that manager was saying. Not only has the legal barrier been broken down, but he is one of us wearing our uniform on our team, on our field, with our goals. We are one. Well, how much more has Christ removed the barrier of the law that stood between Jew and Gentile and united all of his people so much more closely together as one people, in one Savior, worshiping one God, so that the church is one new man, reconciled to each other, because they are all reconciled to God together through faith in Jesus Christ. That is the main point of our passage. That is the logic that Paul gives us. And it is such a message of hope that by God's grace, through Jesus Christ, we are welcomed to the promises of God, to the presence of God, and hope in God through Jesus Christ. But let me conclude by suggesting two applications for us this morning. First, this passage speaks strongly and clearly to our relationships with one another in the body of Christ. This passage shapes how we should approach one another in conflict. I'm confident that most likely every single one of us has been hurt by another believer in Christ at some point. We are all sinners, and our sin impacts one another. And the Bible gives us good, clear steps to resolve conflict in Matthew 5 and Matthew 18. 
but we are still so quick to withdraw from one another or hold bitterness against one another in the body of Christ. But Ephesians 2 gives us the truth we need to undercut that quickness to hold bitterness and be separate. The most fundamental fact about every single one of us, no matter what has happened, is not that we are sinner and sinned against, but that we are fellow sinners together at the foot of the cross in need of the blood of Christ and forgiven and reconciled to God through Christ together. So I think that we could say that if two of us are both united together to Jesus and fellow members of one body in Christ, the alienation and conflict with another believer should be more painful than the hurt of a sin against us by them. And the result is we should be all the more quick to forgive and seek reconciliation with our fellow believers who are one with us in Christ, who is our peace. This passage also shapes how we approach one another in the church. You know, it's so easy for us to gravitate toward those who are most like us. Maybe it's the people with the same hobbies as us, or go to the same school as us, or have fellow family members here. And the result can be a rather insular community or a, or a church with little pockets. But every believer who walks through the doors of our church is a brother or sister in Christ. We are united to them in the closest fellowship, bound together by the Spirit of God. And we should be eager to know them and welcome them and pray for them and encourage them in Christ no matter how different they are. In fact, fellowship and the bonds of the Spirit with those who are different from us is where we most experience the glory of what Christ has done in bringing us together. In fact, it was Jim Boyce who, who said, I am sorry for churches made up of one class of people, as many American churches are, for they lack opportunity to show this new unification of people effectively. I would rather have less growth and a larger number of types and conditions of people who are included in it so that more glory is given to Jesus Christ. And you hear his point. It's not that you have to have a diverse church or you're an unfaithful church. It's what a privilege to be in fellowship with those different than us, for it gives glory to Jesus. And think of what an opportunity we have right here at Westminster with Americans of so many ethnic backgrounds and Burmese and Congolese all worshiping together who are far closer to us as brothers and sisters in Christ than many who may look outwardly like us. What an opportunity to worship together for the glory of God's name. And if I can say this, think about the implications for our current racial discussions going on. This passage reminds us why the gospel is the only power and hope for reconciliation across races. Because in Christ, dividing walls are torn down when we are mutually brought to the foot of the cross. Our unity in Christ as sinners saved by His blood enables us to speak honestly about injustice and to forgive powerfully. And it reminds us fundamentally that our core identity is found together in Christ, not with whatever social or group identity we may have. It's the gospel. It's what Paul says here that grounds what Thaddeus Williams says in his recent book, Confronting Injustice Without Compromising the Truth. He says, In Christ, ethnic enemies become family. Oppressed and oppressor become brothers and sisters. Privileged and underprivileged become equally loved siblings under the same all-loving Father. 
And all of these conflicts then, personal, corporate, it is this bond in the person of Christ who is our peace that gives the church the opportunity to glorify God by acting in ways that the world cannot understand. We should be quick, I think, to say that we don't always do this very well. But this is our call. And the Spirit gives us the resources in Christ to do just this. For we are reconciled together to God in one body through the cross. Finally, for a very different application, Paul twice commands the Gentiles to remember where they came from. Remember that at one time, he says, remember that you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You know, every year when 9-11 comes around, you'll see on billboards or signs that phrase, never forget. And we're being called to never forget the sacrifices of many and the lives that were lost on that day. Paul wants the Ephesian Gentiles to never forget where they came from. And of course, he wants all, Jew and Gentile, to never forget what has been true of them, as we know from the beginning of chapter 2. Because remembering where we were without Christ reminds us of the preciousness of Christ. This past week, I was listening to a Magic Treehouse book with my daughters, Some of you know the Magic Treehouse series. It was a book on the Revolutionary War. And I was reminded of the words of Thomas Paine, a famous quote, many of you will know it, in The American Crisis, when he wrote, What we obtain too cheap, we esteem too lightly. It is dearness only that gives everything its value. But I fear that for many of us, our experience of Christianity has been so easy that we hold it too cheaply. Because maybe it seems to require little of me at times. We esteem it too lightly. But what Paul says here is that the price, the cost of bringing us from far off to near, from alienated to reconciled, from without hope and without God to access to God, the price is nothing less than the blood of Jesus, the Son of God. And if dearness gives something its value, What could be more precious? What more precious has ever been paid than the price that was paid for our salvation? And so, brothers and sisters, may we eagerly seek the presence of God who has drawn us near. May we never forget where we came from or the cost that Christ has prayed to bring us from separated to reconciled, both to God and to each other, so that we give thanks to him as such a Savior every day. Let's pray. Father, How we thank you for Jesus Christ. How we thank you for what he has done in bringing us from alienated from your people, from without hope and without God, to one with you in Christ and therefore one with each other as fellow believers in Jesus. Father, we know how easy it is for our sin to show itself for conflict and separation to come between us. And so, Father, I pray that your Spirit would be at work in our hearts. Give us the humility as fellow sinners at the foot of the cross to forgive and draw near to one another, to be reconciled to one another as one body, as one church, through the blood of Jesus Christ. And may we never lose sight of what you have done for us day by day. 
as we find our joy and our hope in you. We pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.